electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live in the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Tim Seymour, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, we're all over shares of Coinbase after the company reported earnings. A conference call kicking off in just about 30 minutes. We're dialed in and bringing you all the headlines. Plus, a big box breakout. Walmart's been lagging rival Costco for months, but the chartmaster spotted something that suggests that's about to change. We'll dive into, into this to bring you the trade. And a Moderna meltdown. Shares of the biotech company that have nearly doubled in the past month. But one analyst says the run is ridiculous. You won't believe where he says prices should be going from here. He'll tell us why later this hour. But we start off with some material gains. The Dow Industrials jumping to a new record after the Senate passed a long-awaited trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. The S&P uh, eking out its own all-time high at the close. And check out the moves in some of these resource names. Cleveland Cliffs at levels not seen since 2014. Freeport McMoran and U.S. Steel both up more than 4%. Guy, I'll go to you. Welcome back. What do you make of the, the moves? Yeah, thanks, Mel. And I, you know, first, I got to say, you know, Tim's been on this for a while, and he's, I'm going to say a lot of things that he's thinking or might say, but I'll say this. U.S. Steel, you know, $28 stock, $29 stock. You can make a cogent argument that things have never been better for the steel industry. And this is a company that's just basically running itself better, breaks out above $30. Listen, I don't think it's getting back to the March uh, 2018 levels of 45 anytime soon. But I think this should be a $35 stock. You mentioned Cleveland Cliffs, eight-year high. Freeport McMoran obviously sort of lagging a bit, probably given some of its energy exposure. But then names we don't talk about, Martin Marietta, Vulcan Materials, both those names uh, sold off since the May all-time highs. But i got to tell you something, both those names look like they're going to take back those all-time highs and ratchet higher. So this resource trade, although stalled seemingly, over the last couple of months, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's in its infancy at all. I think there's a lot of room left to go. Is this, Tim, do you think, because infrastructure passed? Well, look, um, by the way, Guy does make a lot of cogent arguments. And, and you know, the argument here, I, I actually think that, you know, the debate of whether does U.S. Steel get through those levels of, of Jan 2018 when steel tariffs kicked in, I, I don't know. But I can tell you the environment is better for them. Uh, the balance sheet is less levered. There's less sensitivity. Steel prices are probably double where they were at that time. And, and I think the, the overall, look, the, the infrastructure bill as a fresh catalyst to point to, by the way, yields have been ticking up 25 basis points higher over the last week or so. U.S. Steel's up uh, about 40 percent off those intraday lows uh, from when yields hit those intraday lows, 40 percent. So um, I do think that this infrastructure trades you know, obviously important for those that are the, the one brain cell trades. I, I you know, copper's probably one and a half, uh, but, you know, f energy grid related uh, demand dynamics and what's already been there from home building and, and the housing market, I think, is very strong. Um, the other dynamic here is just the, the, the tech side of infrastructure. The fact that there's 70 billion going to broadband and, and, and tower service and, and, and even companies like T-Mobile benefit because there's going to be vouchers for people to get cellular and, and, and 5G. And, and I think, you know, so this is stuff that some of it's priced in, of course, but some of it, I, I think this was a major play.
political win uh, for Washington today because both sides threw a, you know, had a lot of pork to throw on the table or to fight that pork and they got something done. Yeah. Oh, you look at me because he said one brain cell trade. Is that what, is that I what you did? I looked at you three minutes ago when he said that. Oh, that's right. Okay, fair enough. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that he mentions that <laughs> oh. because, you know, the question about whether it was a sell the news, we finally have infrastructure week after four years, um, and it's happening. Um, you know, these stocks and a lot of those resource names, they kind of sniffed it out already, right? They've been really volatile. I mean, you just mentioned that U.S. Steel's up 4% today. It's up nearly 40% in like two months or something like that. Now, it was down 30% from its May high, so there's been a lot of volatility in the space. People have been anticipating all different sites, uh, sizes of infrastructure deals. I think the most important thing that happened today is that the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield closed very near 1.35%. And did you see what happened to the bank stocks, right? Like, they had been anticipating it. So when the yield was at 1.13 last uh, week, right, making new six, seven-month lows, bank stocks really held in there. We've been talking about it. I think that's really interesting. And you also mentioned the S&P 500 eked out a new all-time high, which is crazy when you think about because tech did not have a great day today. So we're just continuing to see these rotations here. But the major indices, the large cap indices, just levitate. And that's the thing that makes me a little nervous right here with the S&P 500 up 18%, the NASDAQ up 15%. Something's got to give. This is not going to go in a straight line into year end and close at the highs. But you think that this is more than just infrastructure passing, that this is more of an economy is getting better sort of rotation, at least for today. Yeah, it could be. I mean, listen, the, the idea that we're going to have a little linear global recovery right now doesn't seem very likely given what Delta is doing and definitely in parts of our country and parts of the world. So, um, you know, that is what I think why we stay here. That's why we continue to have these rotations. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I listen, I said it last night, I think we're going to have a September that's not too different than what we had last September. We just can't continue to levitate like this with all the volatility under the hood. I felt like today was kind of things are getting better more broadly than just infrastructure. I agree with you. I'm not sure if it was a buy the rumor, sell the news. We've been talking about infrastructure in slow motion for so long. You saw, uh, I think Tim touched on it, housing, housing related stuff really strong today. Retail also really strong today. I don't know if a infrastructure bill is actually somewhat difficult for housing and that they'll be competing for some of these same raw materials, right? And also jobs. So I don't know if that's great, but it seems like the market was anticipating our infrastructure is great and we're going to have more spending and hopefully, you know, Delta ends up uh, abating somewhat and it was pretty strong across the board. I don't exactly know why. I mean, the infrastructure part, okay, I kind of get. All right. But the rest, I'm not really sure why today. Yields moving higher, though. I mean, that that is stabilization. Yields too low, not good. Yields too high, not not good. Guy, maybe this is favorite phrase goldilocks don't say it please i'm begging you i I heard you say it before you said it it makes goldilocks It's like, it's like that scene Ouch. in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I woke up in such a good mood, and then you say something like that, you just you take me back. It's like, ugh. Let me say this in terms of yields. Yeah, maybe they are Goldilocks. I have no idea. I didn't read that poem or short story, whatever it was. But I'll say this. I thought one of the Fed's mandate is stable prices. And 10-year yields going from 113 a week ago to 135 today is anything but stable. And by the way, if we had that kind of volatility in the equity market, that's what we'd lead with without question, and we'd spend 45 minutes talking about it. Something is amiss in the bond market. I'll say it again. Dan, I'm sure, will at me on Twitter or roll his eyes at me, but there's no way on God's green earth that U.S. 10 yields should move 22 basis points in the course of four trading days. 
Maybe that's just the new normal. I hate that phrase, too, along with Goldilocks, new normal. But that does seem the the volatility in the bond market (laughs) seems to be normalized at this point, Tim. I mean, we were talking about 174 not too long ago, too, and that's nuts. Let me let me really bum guy out a day before hump day and obviously three months before (laughs) Turkey Day. Um, Maybe maybe it's green shoots. I mean, you know, again, look, today was a day where I, I, we hate talking politics on this show, thankfully for our audience. Uh, but the, the politics around, this could have been a $2.3 trillion bill that we weren't know how we were going to pay for it. That was going to also really result in a tax on corporate America, which certainly was talked about early on by this administration. I think this is a victory. This is a deal that corporate America is not paying for. We're not seeing tax hikes. We are seeing Washington work together. I'm not getting carried away on that. But I, I, I think the fact is uh, a 25 basis point move off of an over uh, bought. So treasuries and yields sold uh, you know, 111 or so. Uh, you know, I, I just think that was a place that the technical folks like Charter and, and uh, Mr. Verone came on and told us we had to backfill and get there anyway. I, I just you know, I think that the 10 year bond is somewhat held hostage to uh, the dynamics around the Fed and also just really where we are with with how people expect uh, the tapering to move here. I'm not as concerned about it as Guy. He's right to point out that this is supposed to be the deepest bond market in the world. The long end of the curve has volatility. Uh, it always has. And, and I think these kind of moves are, are telling you that people are, are all over the place as they look at growth. I think growth is better than people think. Guy, may I ask you, and I don't know why I'm asking you permission, because I'm going to go ahead and ask, and, and if you want to answer, then fine. If you don't, then I'm out of luck. But why is it troubling to you, the bond moves that we are seeing? When I, so obviously I'm a lot older than most people realize. And when I was, you know, in my nascent days of my career, you know, we would kill for a couple basis point move in a currency or a bond yield. And now we're seeing, you know, 10 basis points moves regularly. It doesn't make any sense to me. Again, why does it concern me? Because bond volatility, in my opinion, led to what we saw in the fall of 2019. You subsequently saw equity volatility that spring. Now, you will say correctly that was on the back of COVID, but I think the seeds were sown long before, and we're starting to see that bond volatility again. And that's concerning with a VIX around 16 and a half, 17, that's not taking into consideration what's going on in the bond market. I don't think yield should move that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is the new normal. And man, I really hate saying things like that, but I don't think it's anything but normal in my opinion. <laughs> Is it, Karen, do you think a precursor possibly to volatility in the stock market? I mean, maybe, although 22 basis points is a lot on a very low base. Mm -hmm. You know, in the olden days, which guy (laughs) I'm sure you'll remember, 22 basis points was not that big of a deal on a different base, you know, on a different denominator. So um, I think it's just a barometer for sentiment, which changes so quickly now. And it's sort of the quickest way to express that. I mean, it is 113. That was pretty low. That seems like ages ago, but it was only last week. Was that really just last week? That, I mean, that is a big move. You see bank stocks react very violently both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that troubles me. I'm sort of, I think the Fed is trying to do a good job of getting the market ready. And the market's a little bit on a trigger finger over this taper. When is it going to begin? How is it going to begin? Is it just bond purchases? How, when will that start? How right. much will it be? So it's a nervous market. I mean, we were just talking about that. I mean, Barclays came out this morning saying that they're going to announce the taper in September. They're going to do their first move in December of this year, which is very early in terms of the, the timeline and, and a consensus view. Morgan Stanley also moved up their timeline. I mean, if they stopped buying, let's say, um, MBS, 
or corporate bonds. I mean, would that really spook the market? I guess it would. Well, not really. The corporate bonds wasn't a big component. I think MBS is something that people think that the housing market is just fine. We don't really need that right now. And I think it's important to go back and remember after the financial crisis, um, we've obviously talked about this when they started to taper in December 2013. They didn't come off a ZERP, you know, until the end of 2015, the zero interest rate policy. So they took a long time. I think there's a lot of investors would be very happy to see them moving towards normalization. So I'm not so sure that we're going to have such a negative negative reaction to that. I think, if anything, it might give them confidence that we're going to come at the other side of this. I think the most important thing is, like, we think about risk assets and then we think about where we are. I think you have to think about global central banks, how much they put into this just to get us right here. And that's the thing that I have a problem. I'm not worried about the 10-year Treasury yield going from 1% to 1.8 back to 1.1 or anything like that. The stock market keeps raging. Most risk assets that you can't, like, bolt, you know, the, everything that's not bolted down has just been going higher. So the question the question really is about valuation and about potential bubbles and what happens. And I think that's where Guy is going with this. I don't think the intraday volatility in a very liquid, you know, treasury market is of a, a, a concern. It really comes down to valuation and how long this can kind of withstand how much further we can kind of inflate. Coming up, a big box battle shares of Costco and Walmart parting ways in recent months, but that could be about to change. The chart master is breaking it down next. Plus, for all our Coinbase earnings, that stock is on the move after reporting. We'll bring you all the details when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. There is a battle brewing between big box retailers. Shares of Walmart and Costco have been wildly divergent over the last several months, but the chartmaster says that could be about to change. Cornerstone Macro's Carter Braxtonworth joins us now to chart it out. Carter, what are you seeing? You bet. Well, I just put out a note this morning talking about a pairs trade, simply uh, making the case that if you're long both, reduce some of your Costco and add to your Walmart. And if you're a long short player, shorting Costco and buying Walmart. Let's look at a few comparative charts and um, figure it out together. So the first is a two-year comparative chart. You can see the parallel lines and then the divergence. Uh, We're talking about now, what, Walmart being up 65% versus, um, excuse me, uh, Costco versus Walmart up half that. Or or look at the next comparative chart. This is a three-year. 
the divergence. So uh, they were tracking quite closely, and then they have diverged since the pandemic low, and that's the issue. Is this divergence sustainable? You're talking about a spread now of almost uh, 40%. So the thinking here is that Walmart is not, has not had earnings, and it's likely to, we think, break out. And Costco, on the other hand, third and final chart, Look at the channel in which Costco has been ascending since the pandemic. I mean, that is literally the definition of a 45-day angle, godlike. Uh, but Costco is up against the upper band of the channel. And so the thought is, you know, you reduce one and you shore up the other. Uh, you know, anyone can say, of course, that Costco is the better business. It is. It has twice the earnings growth rate. It also trades at twice the multiple. But the point is, tactically, and this is, this is there's no way around this, the spread is too wide, and I think Walmart's the better bet here, playing for a breakout after earnings. Carter, when you take a look at the Walmart chart independent of the Costco chart, what in that chart looks good to you? Right, so a couple of things. I mean, it has been a major laggard, obviously, to the market, but it's starting to exhibit relative performance to its uh, peer group, to the consumer staple sector. And I mean, look, even today, just uh, it's nice when things work out on one day. But I mean, you're talking about a performance up, you know, 218 basis points versus 58 basis points for Costco. Uh, will that keep going? We think you'll get uh, divergence and now convergence. We think it breaks out. 170 uh, is what we think. Carter, let me ask you something. Have you looked at Walmart versus any of the others? Like, for example, a Target? Yeah. Or is it the... Yes? Oh, good. Sure. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm looking at all of them. I mean, you know, if you're staring at... I mean, a grown man staring at charts for 14 hours a day, it's kind of absurd in and of itself, but it is what I do. So I'm looking for <laughs> ratios, looking for relationships, looking for opportunities. And um, look, uh, Target's uh, blown, away, uh, blown away Walmart, of course, and maybe that's the better comp. Um, look, Target seems awfully extended here, too. Let me just uh, say one thing since we're, we're talking about, uh, just back to Costco, do you know that there are 36 analysts covering the stock, and collectively their 12-month price target is below where the stock is trading now? Now, how can all 36 people collectively believe that in 12 months the stock will be lower than it is now, unless either they've got something wrong or maybe the stock's expensive? I think Target stretch, I think Costco stretch, I think Walmart's the better bet. Love Carter. <laughs> Carter Worth, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth, the Cornerstone Macro. Guy Nami, you with Carter on this Paris trade? Listen, Carter was the person that told you back in uh, early spring the Caterpillar was overbought to the upside. The stock sold off about $35. He was a guy that told you Bitcoin was getting ready for a huge sell-off. You saw what happened. He was also the person that said uh, that yields were going to go significantly lower when 10 years were trading around 1.4. Obviously, we just had a conversation about that. So if he tells me Walmart's the next stock to go higher. I'll be with them. And I happen to agree, by the way. Costco's up 42% since March. Something has to give. And oh, by the way, throw another retailer in there. Dollar Gen reports, I think, on the 26th of August. That stock now getting into health care. They just announced they're going to hire 40,000 people by Labor Day. I think that's a stock that continues to rally into earnings. Tim? Well, look, he's also talking about it from from a bias of the market overall. And, and, and guys also talking about it as a pair trade or they're both talking about a pair trade. Walmart's been the short side of a lot of pair trades over the last 18 months um, where it was you know, funding for hedge funds. I think the, the long bias takes over here. Look, the breakout of the stock, again, up through 148 ish. Let's get through that 152 level, which is where we were when we were pricing in a lot of Walmart plus, et cetera. Uh, it should be defensive. The valuation at you know, 25 times forward is not 
not demanding. And I actually think you know, inflation helps a Walmart. So, uh, you know, these are all factors that I feel very comfortable owning Walmart. And I think it has uh, underperformed for too long. At this point, Karen, I mean, you own Target and, and Walmart. Walmart. Right. Which do you like better? Well, I guess my book would say Target because I own more Target and more dollars in Target. I think the mix that's happening now as we get less groceries, more apparel, more things like that that have better margins, that's better for Target. But the run in Target has been higher. Still, the Target valuation is cheaper, 21 times versus 24.5 for Walmart. So I'm going to stay with both. I like them both. I don't do really pairs trade, but I agree with Carter, which I should do more often. <laughs> we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Coinbase earnings are on deck, and we've got a Bitcoin bull ready to break down all the action. Plus, Moderna's seen a meteoric rise. But what can have the biotech stock on pause? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Coinbase. Shares of the crypto exchange moving lower after reporting its latest results. The conference call is set to kick off in just a few minutes. For all the details, let's get to Kate Rooney. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Coinbase with a strong beat on the top and bottom line, but forecasting a trading slowdown in the current quarter. Revenue topping $2 billion in the quarter with a more than 1,000% gain year over year on guidance. Coinbase says, Quote, the business is inherently unpredictable. They say trading volume will be lower in the third quarter when compared to Q2. That revenue is tightly correlated with crypto volatility and those prices. That was certainly the case for the most recent quarter, especially as Bitcoin and Ether hit some of those all-time highs back in April and then dropped by about 40%. As the company put it, the crypto market environment heavily influenced Q2 financial results. And the key thing driving that revenue beat with some of those retail transaction revenues, a.k.a. fees. That came in at $1.8 billion, an increase of about 26% compared to Q1. Institutional transaction revenue was much smaller. It was about $102 million for the quarter. Trading volume, meanwhile, was up 38%. Monthly transaction uh, users grew about 44% in the quarter, so a big gain there as well. One interesting dynamic, though, guys, Bitcoin appears to be losing some of its dominance on Coinbase. It now makes up less than half of total assets on the Coinbase platform. That was versus 62% earlier this year in the first quarter. And for the first time ever, Ethereum trading volume was higher than Bitcoin. Coinbase says that was driven by growth in the DeFi market or decentralized finance, as well as NFT ecosystems, where Ethereum is the underlying blockchain there. The call does kick off imminently at 5.30 Eastern. We should get a little more detail about guidance, and we'll hear from CEO Brian Armstrong. And do not miss Coinbase's CFO, Alicia Haas, on Squawk Box tomorrow morning as well. Melissa, back to you. What was that quote, Kate? It is inherently difficult to predict this business. Something like that? It is. Let's see here. Inherently, oh, the business is inherently unpredictable, so it makes it extremely hard to forecast for some of those analysts. 
Yeah, seems like a problem there. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Um, Dan Nathan. Yeah. That's good and that's bad. Well, here's the really interesting irony about this whole situation. The centralized platform that's a great on-ramp to trade the decentralized crypto assets, right. right, is actually seeing a lot of competition from Ethereum, which is gaining market share on their platform because of DeFi, decentralized finance. And we know that, like, decentralized exchanges, that's what they're doing a lot of volume. And we were talking about that back in April when this company went public through a direct listing. So this is the thing. It is going to be very hard to predict. And, and especially if we see DeFi and some of these other um, protocols take off, um, you know, Coinbase is going to be, you know, it's going to be hard to justify maybe a $56 billion uh, market uh, cap that it has right now. And here's the other thing, and we all know this, this is a big part of the bear case in Coinbase, and I'm really relatively constructive on it, I think, is that the fee compression is going to happen, right? So when Got we it. see all this happen. volume go off to decentralized exchanges, so that's the other thing I would just say. So you're saying basically that this centralized platform of Coinbase is providing an on-ramp to to finance the decentralized platform, which would eventually yeah, possibly disintermediate I think the did, centralized. You did a documentary platform. on this stuff, right? You kind of know your stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, that's why I know what HODL is. Yeah. <laughs> Before Gene Simmons told yeah. us. <laughs> Karen, what do you think of this business? I think it's sort of interesting in that they do have a they do have market share, right? They are sort of the place to go. I think that uh, clearly to me, cryptocurrency has legs for a while. And sometimes they, they might enjoy that thicker, you know, that bigger margin for longer than we think. I'm sort of constructive on it as well. I don't I think how could they possibly know what this business is going to do? Of course, they should say that. they absolutely should say that. I'd be concerned if they thought they had great clarity into what would happen to the business the next quarter. So I don't own it, it because it's very, very expensive. But I do own cryptocurrency and like Robinhood, as long as those meme stocks are still a thing, that's good for Robinhood. So as long as cryptocurrency shows strength and interest and institutional interest, I think there's a bid for coin. And there's an overlap there, too, between the people who invest in meme stocks and the crypto. Um, for more reaction to Coinbase's results in the state of crypto, let's bring in Anthony Pompliano, founder of Pomp Investments. Anthony, great to have you with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me back. I want to get to Dan's provocative statement, and that is that the centralized platform is an on-ramp to a decentralized DeFi world, um, like Ethereum, financing that world, which could potentially disintermediate the centralized platform. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's too hard to predict kind of exactly how this will play out, but it's very clear that there's going to be decentralized financial applications uh, in the future, and there will still be centralized applications as well. I think it'll be a coexistence world. Uh, I don't think that most of the large financial institutions on Wall Street are ready to go into any sort of decentralized applications. Uh, they're still worried about things like custody or security, uh, potential hacks, etc., uh, but I do think that we are going to see both of those worlds thrive in the future. And really what we're watching here is Coinbase can't predict the future because nobody can predict how the world is going to price these assets, right? If the world continues to price these assets higher in the future, Coinbase will do really well. If the world all of a sudden decides to reverse the trend and kind of abandon the assets, then Coinbase won't do well. But I think that most people in the industry believe, you know, 10 years out from now, uh, the industry will be much, much bigger and the market caps of the individual assets will be much bigger. And that'll likely serve as a great tailwind for a business like Coinbase. Do you own any Coinbase? Uh, I, I do. Uh, through one of our funds, we were an investor in, uh, in the private market and uh, continued to hold majority of it into uh, the public market. But for the viewers out there who, who, let's say they don't hold either and they've got, I don't know, 
let's say, $100,000 to put someplace, where would that be? Would it be in shares of Coinbase or would that be in Bitcoin or Ethereum? Yeah, I, I think it really is what you're trying to optimize for. It's hard to give kind of, you know, uh, one returns. size fits all advice there. <laughs> We're trying yeah. to optimize returns. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, here's what I mean by that is when you're trying to optimize for returns, right? It's kind of like asking, should you invest in gold or the gold miners? One has cash flow and one is the actual underlying performance of the asset. What we do know is that in the earliest stages of the private market, the equity of companies in the space have outperformed the actual liquid asset like Bitcoin. Uh, but in we don't have as much historical data on the publicly traded companies. You know, is it more likely that Bitcoin doubles in price or Coinbase doubles in price? My guess, if I had to, to is that Bitcoin is much more likely to double in price. That's just, it's a large uh, number, right? Coinbase is already a $56 billion business, give or take. Uh, for it to get to $100, $200 billion is going to be uh, pretty hard. For Bitcoin to go to $100,000 or $200,000, uh, I think is a much easier path uh, and much more likely to happen you know, this year, so on a shortened time frame, than let's say Coinbase doing that uh, through the end of this year as well. Hey, Anthony, it's Tim. We, you know, we're talking about this decline in the retail fee rate. How do you see Coinbase increasing uh, their retail take? What products uh, or is it just moving down the curve in terms of uh, less liquid crypto products that come through? Yeah, I think every single one of these businesses that's in uh, any sort of transactional, um, you know, kind of product offering, they're all going to get commoditized uh, to some degree. That's just what happens with competition. Uh, I think there's something like 400 crypto exchanges around the world at this point. And so naturally, competition will drive down some of those uh, uh, fees. With that said, they're going to keep pushing out into other products. And you see that whether it's Coinbase in the private market, you see companies like BlockFi, uh, where we're an investor, et cetera. They all keep pushing into newer and newer products. We are still at the nascent kind of era of this industry. And so uh, in the traditional financial system, every single financial asset uh, and service or product that you have there, that's going to get rebuilt in this digital financial economy. And so these are the companies, these market leaders are the companies that are going to do that. It just takes time. It takes engineering uh, kind of effort to do. And I think that's what we're watching is uh, Coinbase isn't that old, right? I think Coinbase was started in like 2013, 2014. So it's less than 10 years old. And we're already talking about a 50 plus billion dollar business. Uh, and I think that you just got to give it some time for them to push out into those other products, but they eventually will. And that'll lead to even more revenue generation in the future. Pop, would you use any of your Bitcoin to buy a movie ticket? Or popcorn. <laughs> I, I talked about this earlier today. If I'm AMC CEO, I don't know if he's watching. He seems to be a fan of you all. Uh, I, you know, you should accept Bitcoin. I think that's a good idea. I will not be buying movie tickets with Bitcoin. I don't think most people will. Uh, but I think AMC should take uh, some of the money on the balance sheet. I think they get over a billion and a half dollars. They should buy Bitcoin. Uh, and that would be the real conviction bet. You want to kind of appeal to your shareholder base. You want to explain to people that you understand where the world's moving. Go buy Bitcoin, put it on your balance sheet, and I think that uh, they'll get kind of the impact they're looking for, not just from accepting Bitcoin for movie tickets, but that's kind of the really uh, you know high conviction bet, and I think they got the cash to do it. So you think it's symbolic? This is symbolic. It's not really about people using Bitcoin to buy a movie ticket. If I told you that you had an asset that continued to appreciate at 150 to 200 percent compound annual growth over a decade. And it likely wasn't going to slow down too much from that over the next couple of years. Would you use it to buy movie tickets? Probably not. And so I think they understand that. But I also think they understand who their shareholder base is. Uh, and so why not enjoy some of the upside or the potential upside uh, along with your shareholder base? Go buy the Bitcoin, put it on your balance sheet, uh, tell everyone you did it. And uh, I think that it'll end up being a pretty good uh, move. For Pomp, thanks so much. Good to see you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Anthony Pompliano. 
Karen, that's my that was my first thought this morning or, or last night when I when I heard the news about AMC taking Bitcoin is that it would go on the balance sheet. Uh huh. OK, um, <laughs> if you're the lender to AMC, I think they have a term loan. I think they have yeah. some debt. If you're the lender, you got to be going berserk. Right. If they were going to consider gonna... anything right. remotely close to. But I don't know. Maybe they never put that in because it never entered their mind. The lender. You mean as a, as a... As a covenant or a... Right. right that, no, can't buy Bitcoin. Maybe they just didn't, didn't foresee that. <laughs> they will now. Yeah. Um, Tim, where do you stand on Coinbase? Again, I, I, I love the audience. I love the, the first mover advantage. I, I'm less concerned about the decline in the retail take because I, I, I just think that there's going to continue to be a growing addressable market here. And I think there will be products. So, um, look, I, I think heavy correlation right now to meme stocks and, and Robinhood and Coinbase chart that correlation. I mean, that R squared is going to be, I think, reasonably high for the next uh, you know, year or so. But I, I think the long term, this is not my space. Um, this is a company that's going to continue to evolve. Think about how far ahead of the pack they were on the technology and on the space to begin with. I, I don't think they're suddenly going dumb over there. I, I think they're going to be there. What's your take on the chart of AMC guy, given it was up 10 percent pre-market and then finished the day down six? Doesn't trade particularly well. And now I'm going to get the hate tweets are coming at me. Sorry I to can set feel you up it, for that. But, you know, we got to ask whatever. the question, though. No, it's, it's, <laughs> No, look, it's fine. It's it's fair. I mean, AMC, I saw the interview. I mean, in balance sheet wise, I guess you could say they're in a great position. But the, the bottom line is they're in a failing business. I mean, you can't get around that. Now, if they go out and make acquisitions or if they put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, regardless of covenants that are out there, I think we're having a much different conversation about the stock. But the business is clearly uh, doesn't warn that wherever the stock is trading right now. I'll say this quick about Coinbase. Uh, where are you sitting? You're at the NASDAQ. I know that answer because that's Times the square, good lawyers yes. always know the answer to the questions they ask. But got to riddle me this. Maybe Coinbase is a $70 billion company. It's worthy of that. Then NASDAQ's got to be a lot worth a lot more than the $30 billion it's traded at. So I, I just think that things have gotten a little out of whack here. Um, and, you know, if Coinbase is viable at $70 billion, then names like NASDAQ should be worth, worth a lot more, in my opinion. Coming up, we've got another earnings alert coming your way. Shares of WW sinking after its results will bring you the details next. Plus, we are digging into Moderna's retreat from record highs. The stock falling hard in today's session. One top analyst sees another big drop ahead. We'll dive into that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of the company formerly known as Weight Watchers are sinking after its results. Courtney Reagan's got the details. Court. Hi, Melissa. So a difficult quarter for WW, a miss on earnings, a miss on revenue, and some disappointing subscriber numbers, too. The company, formerly known as Weight Watchers, saw subscribers fall both year over year and quarter over quarter, coming up short of the company's own expectations. Its full-year revenue forecast also below the street's consensus. CEO Mindy Grossman says, quote, there is a plan to optimize performance in the second half of the year and position us well for growth in 2022. Shares, though, tumbling after hours more than 20 percent. Year-to-date, WW International has gained about 32 percent. On the conference call, Grossman mentioned the continued commitment of board member and shareholder Oprah Winfrey and also noted surveys citing weight gain during the pandemic, basically giving investors reasons why she believes the company's prospects are good going forward. But shareholders not believing it, at least not at this very moment. Melissa, back over to you. 
Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan. Karen, you are in this trade. Yes. It is painful tonight. Trade. Yes. This is a painful one. I, they, that, those were awful. I mean, it was a big revenue miss, which I hate. Subscriber growth and that transition to the digital subscriber, which is a better margin uh, customer, even though it's a lower dollar amount uh, that they missed there. For all the reasons that she's optimistic on the full year forecast, those should have been reasons that this quarter would have, should have been better. Very disappointing. Um, so... Um, I'm a seller, I'm long stock, I'm a seller, short calls, I'll probably, they'll go out worthless, so just let that happen. But I find this very disappointing. I don't think, you know, so I've had back-to-back yuck stock earnings, real, real, real. real yesterday, mm-hmm. WW Today, real, real to me, the fundamental story seems very much intact. Um, so I, that, you know, isn't nearly as troubling. This is far more troubling to me. This, is, does this seem like an execution issue, and so therefore you don't have confidence in the management team? I think Mindy Grossman's great. Maybe it's bigger than that, right? Okay. It could be that. That is possible. Maybe the industry is changing around her. It, that could be it as well. That okay. could, I'm, I don't know which is which. I think Mindy Grossman's great, so maybe it is the industry. Maybe it's competitors like Noom. Um, but uh, this is too disappointing to me. To but say. let's be clear. You're selling. You're out. You're, gonna, you're out. I've been, I sold some tonight. I will sell some tomorrow. Coming up, shares of Moderna taking a breather today after a massive rally. A top analyst will join us to tell us why he says the recent move is, quote-unquote, ridiculous. Plus, Baidu gearing up to deliver earnings later this week. Option traders are logging on ahead of the report. We'll bring you the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Moderna's record rally losing steam today as shares fell almost 6%. Even with today's drop, though, the stock has nearly doubled in just the last month. One analyst, though, says the run has been, quote, ridiculous, and he's calling for a big pullback. Let's bring in Jeff Meacham of Bank of America. Jeff, great to have you with us. Hey, Melissa. Thank you. Good to see you. So you think that this stock should be about 75% below approximately where it is right now. Why? You know, I do. I would say over the past few uh, weeks, uh, the move has been so dramatic. And, and when you look at the, the valuation, you know, it's really, as of yesterday, it was very similar to Merck. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying the company doesn't have a great technology. They do. Uh, and I also think they've done a great job investing back in the business. But the assumptions that you have to make to get to, you know, this valuation literally assume that you, know, you have about a billion in COVID vaccine sales per a, a billion doses every year from now till 2038. And you also have to assume that the probability of success, the entire pipeline is 100% and everything works. You know, And those are just not really safe assumptions, I would say. So I always go back to the model and the model doesn't really uh, reconcile with the current, you know, the current valuation. So let's sort of tackle each of those um, assumptions which you think are pretty lofty. And in terms of the delivering the one to one and a half billion doses a year through 2038 is, why is that not possible, given that you might need the vaccine itself? You might need boosters to the original shot, plus boosters on top of boosters for different variants. And, and it's a global issue. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. We've done a lot of calls with experts uh, from epidemiologists to you know, infectious disease experts to really to, to people in the field, you know, treating patients. Um, and the vast majority of new cases now are those that are unvaccinated. So the, the breakthrough rate is low. Uh, Moderna's vaccine and other vaccines are actually working. Um, and I don't think there's a need to have annual boosters, certainly, 
you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see perhaps every couple years, but you know, the immune titers, the antibody titers that we've seen, and they have slowed down you know, since a person is vaccinated, uh, they do naturally go down, but it doesn't justify, I think, you know, annual boosters, uh, certainly not, you know, for those that, that uh, have been treated, you know, just a few months ago. Um, so I, I mean, I'm just of the view that, you know, we, we don't we don't need annual boosters. And that is the, the feedback from, you know, many may key opinion leaders. And also the CDC has stopped short of recommending that as well. In terms of its pipeline and, and the assumption that 100 percent of what's in the pipeline makes it across the finish line, um, isn't it a, a greater probability now versus, let's say, I don't know, 18 months ago, um, that much of this pipeline does, in fact, cross the finish line because we have proof of concept now for the technology? You know, you're absolutely right from the standpoint of the, the technology has been de-risked from a safety and tolerability perspective. You know, you don't give, you know, 500 million, almost a billion people the COVID vaccine without any real safety consequence and, and not have that make an impact. But I think you still have to go through the actual work, you know, of running the running trials uh, for CMV and for flu. You know, these are programs that you still have to show, you know, disease resolution for cancer. You still have to show, you know, tumor shrinkage. Uh, and for some of the rare diseases or cardiovascular programs, you still have to show a clinical benefit. So I think it's been de-risked, you know, from a safety perspective. Um, but I would still think, though, you, you have to have, you know, the natural progression of drugs in development go through the clinical development process uh, and, and have, you know, good efficacy and, and, and show a good risk benefit. And, and it's not that Moderna doesn't have those assets. It's just that they're pretty early uh, in, in development. Jeff, great to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Yep, thank you very much. Jeff Meacham, Bank of America, underperform rating, no surprise given his commentary, and a $115 price target guy. What do you think? Jeff does extraordinary work. I respect it. I mean, if you read the note, which I know you did, I mean, it speaks to exactly the reasons why. One of the, you know, one of the risks to his assertions are accelerated approval of some of their products, which in this environment we could find ourselves having. But you know, when he puts a $115 price target on it, if you've been long the stock, it's been an incredible run. I think you got to take notice. Now, I don't know if it goes to 115 but you could easily see on the back of a note like this and then subsequent notes from other analysts, the stock trade in the low 300 So great run. Maybe it's time to take some money off the table. Um, even with the pullback, it's worth just about as much as Merck or Amgen. Tim, would you rather... A Mo- Ashley, would you rather, rather, Moderna, Merck, or Amgen? Well, a- yeah, that's, well, that's, that's too complicated. I need guys' help on that. I, <laughs> I, I would take Merck. Um, and, and ultimately, you have a case here where, I, and I think J.P. Morgan's note recently out is priced, uh, saving the world, but priced like saving the universe. Uh, and I think that's the story here. And it's very difficult. You, you almost have to DCF this, discounted cash flow. And you can come up with any number you want, but you throw heavy discounts and you give them the 10 products that they even have in their pipeline beyond this, and it's tough to get a number much above 300. So, um, no, I, look, I'm, I'm long Merck. Uh, I believe in what they do long term, and, and it's, it's a very different story, of course. Coming up, we're digging into some Baidu options ahead of the company's earnings report later this week. Got the details in just a few. Welcome back to the Fast Money. Baidu gearing up to report earnings this week. Options traders seem to be optimistic ahead of the results. Mike Coe, what are you seeing? 
Yeah, somewhat optimistic, one could say. So today we did see calls outpacing puts by about two to one. Right now, the options market is implying that the stock could move about eight and a half dollars by the close on Friday. That's a little over five percent of the stock's one sixty five and a half or so closing stock price. But that is significantly lower, actually, than the average over the last eight quarters. It's moved on average about seven percent. The most active options that we saw today were the weekly 170 strike calls, a little over 1,800 of those traded at an average price of about $2.60 a share. So buyers of those calls would need to see the stock rise by about 4.2 percent or so by the end of the week to break even. So presumably they're expecting an upward move of a little bit more than that. So there is some bullish activity. But on balance, I would have to say that the options market is expecting a more muted move than they had been expecting in past quarters. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. DraftKings making a move into the NFT world. The sports betting app will start dropping NFTs featuring Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady tomorrow. And DraftKings says other athletes will follow. Do you remember when they went public, Dan? I don't know if you know this. When they rang the bell here at the NASDAQ, they were all wearing shirts with an NFT on it. Really? I mean, yeah. listen, I, why wouldn't they do that? And, and, you know, for people who are calling the death of NFTs back in the day of Beeple and everything like that, you remember that? It seems like a long time ago. Months like ago. NFT volumes have gone, <laughs> they've exploded, right? You're not having these high dollar values for fine art, but you're having them across the space. So it's, why not? It's a culture of trading yeah. that we're dealing with here. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Or you can buy a Tom, a Tom Brady jersey at Walmart, or you can do it online, but Walmart. I mean, we talked about this earlier in the show. This is a 22 times forward, not expensive company. Guy. Uh, Dollar Gen, Melissa. Karen Feinerman. Guy, I actually thought your NASDAQ idea was interesting relative to Coinbase. So, NASDAQ. Dan Nathan. Yeah. Danny Nathan. Danny Nathan. There we go. Um, XLK, that's a technology select ETF. I am a seller of that. I'm long over puts. I think we have a pullback in the coming weeks. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.